Well, hello. Welcome to Talking Object. My name is Cesar Ranero, and today we'll be talking about the dissonance in music distribution and how modern streaming and copyright law are affecting musical makers. Uh, before we begin, let me tell you a little bit about myself. My pronouns are they, he. I was born in Minneapolis, grew up in Mexico City, was working in Brooklyn these past two years as a scenic carpenter until I lost my job because of COVID, and now I'm doing a podcast uh, for fun, I guess. <laughs> um, joining me today in the conversation is Henry Ellison. Henry, why don't you take a second to introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Henry Ellison. I use he, him pronouns. I'm from New York City. I work in theatrical stage production and events production. Uh, that's how I met Cesar. That's how I became friends. And uh, I'm glad to be here today for the ride. Cheers, Henry. Glad to have you on. So, talking about music can be challenging. Music itself as a process is a long and complex journey. Furthermore, music has a very wide social impact from sharing in its life performance in times of joy to when we shelter in song during times of stress. So Henry came up with a great way of talking about how nowadays the process of sharing music has become very unequal and how technology has shaped the ownership of music. So today's talking object is the harmony of music ownership and the dissonance of art and capitalism in the digital age. The idea is that the ownership of music exists simultaneously on three different planes that construct this chord of music as an art form and recorded commodity that defines the way it is shared through modern technology. The first note of this chord is the ownership by the listener, which is the cultural and societal dimension. The second is the ownership of music by the artist who composes and records original music or arrangements. It is the creative and philosophical dimension of music as an art form. And the final note of this chord is the ownership by streaming services, record labels, and middlemen figures who widely distribute music to the public. It represents the way in which they take ownership over intellectual property and copyrights of individual artists as sellers of recorded music. In music, a chord is constructed of at least three notes, so you can't have two of these types of ownership over music in the modern day without the third. What we'll be taking a closer look at today is how distributors and middlemen figures like streaming services and major record labels are kind of drowning out the ownership of music by listeners and appreciators, individual music makers. So one of the ways listeners can start to think about the dissonant harmony of these three types of music ownership is by exploring the widespread phenomenon of sampling in hip-hop by producers such as Kanye West, who made old recordings of artists like Nina Simone more popular and digestible for younger audiences, particularly in the age of the internet and digital music. It's important to talk about the system that operates behind the music we listen to because music is something that usually happens in the background for most of our lives, and we don't usually pause to think about the artists who create our favorite jams. However, in times of change and in times of self-reflection, uh, it's the music that is almost always at the generational vanguard and at the cutting edge. I think in the wake of the murder of George Floyd, that we are seeing in our streets a message that harmonizes with the protest music of the 40s, 50s, and 60s, like the music of Joan Baez or the music of Nina Simone. 
Uh, to that end, Henry is going to start us off by talking about Nina uh, briefly before we dive into the bigger picture. Yeah, I think it's pretty incredible that an artist who's been dead for almost two decades can be brought back to the limelight and appreciated in a way that she may not have been in her own lifetime. There's this interesting dynamic between her and Kanye as they both have this tendency to hearken back to older forms of music, older compositions they themselves did not create, but can appreciate in a new way and transform these songs to have an entirely new meaning. She performed this really amazing cover of the Beatles' Revolution, in which she takes a song that was written in protest of the Vietnam War to be a rallying cry for black liberation as a vocal advocate for the Black Panther Party. She's also known for a cover she recorded of Strange Fruit, more popularly performed by Billie Holiday, written by a Jewish-American composer, Lewis Allen, in protest of white supremacist lynchings. Kanye used Simone's recording of the tune as a sample for the track Blood on the Leaves off of his album, Yeezus. Kanye's album tour earned $25 million as Yeezus soared to number one on the Billboard Top 200 list at the time. Kanye's ability to reach a mass audience and go platinum with repurposing of old tunes is rather incredible in and of itself. Yeah, I think it's interesting how sampling has revived the oldies for the TikTok generation, so to speak. In 2015, one of Simone's personal lawyers came into contention with Sony Music over the ownership of copyrights to her music. The legal fight came into the headlines of The Hollywood Reporter. Sony had paid out just $390,000 in settlements, but her lawyer continued to claim that the label was essentially pirating her music. Kanye himself has been accused of similar behaviors and ended up having to pay out an unknown amount to Ricky Spicer, who was 12 years old when he sang the part heard in Kanye's track Bound 2, also from his album Yeezus. Very cool. With that, let's open up the conversation to our panel. Uh, joining us today are Jake Blunt, Annalise McCarthy, and David Ward. Uh, guys, take a second to introduce yourselves. Uh, sure. My name is Jake Blunt. I live in Providence, Rhode Island. I'm originally from Washington, D.C., and I am a full-time musician. I play traditional fiddle and banjo music from Black and Native American communities, primarily in the southeastern United States. Um, my name is Annalise McCarthy. I currently am a pre-K teacher, but I used to work in the music industry at an independent music distribution company. Uh, I'm also a musician and distribute independently. So I'll be kind of discussing both ends of that. And David. I'm uh, David Ward. Um, I'm a group outside of DC. Um, I've worked in the music industry since I graduated college in 2014, and I'm currently a law student hoping to get into um, intellectual property law. Perfect. And with that, let's have our first question from Henry. So I'd kind of just like to start by uh, pointing a question to Jake. Um, Jake, can you tell us a little bit about how artists like Nina Simone's music has been kind of repopularized and revered by modern pop culture through sampling? I'm definitely not the foremost Nina Simone expert. My understanding from my listening habits and my reading about her life is that she's been 
sampled and referenced and recycled in the same way that she did with music that she picked up while she was alive. Nina Simone is widely known for her stellar covers of other musicians' songs. And in that way, it seems almost fitting that people like Kanye West and other hip hop artists would be sampling her work, particularly since she dealt with so many of the same topics that they seek to address. So we have this uh, kind of funny moment where this really phenomenally talented Black woman who struggled to gain recognition during her life and struggled to be accepted into the musical establishment as it was, uh, from getting into conservatory to just getting herself heard and respected, uh, is now being brought to the fore as this sort of forerunner of what is now the dominant musical influence in the world um it's pretty it's pretty exciting to see that that's being done and uh to know that she's been recognized in that way i think it's definitely important to distinguish between the musical tradition that jake i think described quite well of black music being this kind of kind of like uh crowdsourced uh beast that everyone puts their soul to i mean like that is different from artists sort of like taking advantage of other people's copyrights, not sourcing them, not paying them the royalties. And I think almost more pressingly how that copyright law is almost always used to put down smaller up and coming acts, smaller up and coming venues, and how these bigger players like Kanye West can sort of like skirt the law and bend it to their will. Well, I think one thing that I would add here, uh, just as someone who is a participant in Black oral traditions, of which I would consider hip-hop to be one, within our circles, it's never been a taboo to take material from other musicians, to recycle lyrics, to recycle chords, to recycle a song structure. That's been something that we've done from the very beginning. And I think part of what brings complication to the picture when copyright law comes into place is that it's meant to apply across the board to all the musical traditions and genres out there, even though we all have different norms, right? I'm what you would call an old time musician. So I'm performing in this style of music where everyone's sort of learning the same tunes and songs. And even if I write my own tune or song, the most I could hope for in terms of acceptance from my scene would be that other people would go learn it and playing it without asking me, right? So what I aspire to is to have someone do what Kanye West has done. And now I think it's a little bit different depending on how you're using someone's material. I think if I was gonna make like a super controversial statement with someone else's song and I didn't know them personally, I would, have a hard time not asking. But I think that's a judgment call. And I think it just goes back down to the the issues inherent with creating a one size fits all set of regulations for traditions that sometimes have very little in common in terms of how material gets shared between artists. Like it, it would be kind of an honor for another musician to, I mean, first ask you permission to cover one of your songs but you said that it would be like no issue to you as long as they got um, consent, right? Yeah, I mean, I think it would depend. If, for example, Lady Antebellum called me right now and was like, we're going to play 
this song of yours, I'd be like, no, you're not. <laughs> and I think, you know, I, I like to have the ability to say no when I feel like it's sort of an interloper almost and in that I'm not part of a musical scene with Lady Antebellum, right? Like they don't have any claim to what I'm doing. There are all sorts of people doing different covers of stuff all over the world who are learning from other folks' material. I had a guy send me a cover of one of my songs on an oud. This dude from the Middle East who I'd never met before, who'd like seen me on some Facebook live stream, was like, I love this song. I'm going to go learn it. It rocked. I shared it. I was like, this is sweet. So <laughs> I think, I, I don't know. I, I understand when you're running numbers like a lot of these big pop artists are where not only is your music your passion and your livelihood but you have employees you have a business that is reliant on those numbers staying stable you have to really be a dog about making sure those things are getting met and those requirements are respected just to make sure that you're in the black and i'm not going to tell anyone that they shouldn't do that on the other hand, I do think, and this is something that we'll come back to later, there needs to be some respect within the law, within the regulations for the existence of smaller musical players, whether that means venues, whether that means artists. There are people who are not going to be making enough money on your music that it's worth collecting royalties totally. from them, totally. right? Yeah. Uh, and I think that that's something we all need to be be watchful for 100%. maybe this has to be case by case you're totally right i definitely want to hang on to the idea of consent in music because when we're using the word consent we're talking about a power system in which the consent fits you know like like that's why you need it because there's like a lot of like structures and a lot of levers and you just need to make sure that people are yeah consenting to the music that you publish, uh, to the intention that you do it to, that you keep true to the spirit of the music. And to that end, I think Annalise also has a really good perspective on sort of how that power structure has changed over time. If we take a look at how the music industry has evolved over time, basically back before streaming took off, artists did not have to tour so frequently because they actually could make a livable salary off of the distribution of their albums. But then once streaming took over, you know, this really changed everything. Um, maybe not the major music companies that we would think of went under, but a lot of smaller independent record labels no longer exist because of the payment that comes from the streaming rates. So basically as the streaming became more relevant, it replaced those bigger record labels and so eventually what happened now is of course there are still record labels um large record labels small record labels and the artists do get signed and distributed by labels for a vast majority of people uh, and musicians it's up to them to independently distribute their music so what happens is you go through this uh independent distributor so we could say the middleman and you know before the artists had the record labels with the big teams and you know it was nowadays you kind of have to be part a business person and part an artist so yeah there's been a lot of change over the past decades
Luis is alluding to is this kind of double entendre that exists now where the guise is that recording has become an individual, independently performed practice with the advent of home recording technologies. Musicians can purchase equipment and record from the comfort of their own homes, but then the responsibility rests on their own shoulders to get their music out there and published and distributed. So they turn to these middlemen distributors like DistroKid, and they may lack the knowledge on copywriting and going through PROs to get their music recognized and protected. Well, I mean, the process itself is fairly simple and self-explanatory. You know, you're uploading your music, your album artwork, the technical process of how it, it's done, as long as you have a basic understanding of how a computer works, you know, pretty much anyone can figure it out. You know, it is, it's a beautiful thing in a way that now because of technology, anyone can get their music out there, you know? Why do you need to go through a middleman to get onto Spotify? Then you're paying this middleman these super high rates only to get paid back pennies. Like of, and, sorry, do you feel like a lot of um, musicians don't see like the return of the investments that they make in getting their music distributed? You know, basically it's the vast majority of people, the money that they're paying the distribution company is just never going to match up with the amount that they're making in streaming. So, I mean, this is a personal opinion, but for me, like, it starts to kind of feel like, you know, like a scam. The the distributor, it doesn't copyright the work for them. It's still, yes, it is still up to the artist to copyright their own material. And a lot of artists may not know how to do that or may not be aware of that. So they could be distributing their music without having the proper protection, basically. Um, just from a legal standpoint, copyright exists the moment it's created. So actually, this podcast right now is currently copyrighted. There's a difference in how it's protected after that. If someone were to say, use this podcast right now, you wouldn't be able to sue them until you go file for that registration, but then you can recover for everything. So your copyright exists at the moment of creation, but filing it is what gives you the right to sue people. Um, so that is something that not a lot of people know is that even if you didn't file it, you still have a right to it. So, sorry, just to conclude. So basically, I don't think it's a bad thing that we have streaming and we have the internet and everyone's able to upload their music. I mean, it does make the market a bit more saturated. And, you know, when there were just those major record labels at the same time, just because everyone can upload their music, that I don't understand why there has to be this, you know, capitalistic middleman that's making the, the money off of, you know, the independent artist that is just never going to make the same amount of money back. I just want to ask Jake, how has your experience as someone who works with a record label and self-publishing, how is that different from what Annalise is describing? So I've done it both ways. Right now, I'm working with a really awesome small indie label <clears throat> called Free Dirt Records and Service Companies. Um, but my first EP came out, I just released it through CD Baby and my, uh, duo album that came out in between the two, uh, with my duo Tui that, uh, was distributed by the label that I'm now on, but we were not signed at the time. So I kind of had this gradual move into working with the label. I would say I have a slightly different take on the role of the distributor 
in that, especially in the digital era, there are so many online platforms that I wouldn't know where to put all of my stuff if I was to do it myself. And I think it depends on what platform you use. Some certainly are kind of predatory as far as what cut they're taking, what they're charging you. I am pretty sure I haven't looked at the details in a while because, as you say, it is a trickle of pennies that comes in from streaming. I'm pretty sure my CD Baby deal was I paid a one-time fee when I released the record, and then they take a percentage of it. And I know working with my label as a distributor before I was signed to them, they just take a percentage of it. So... It's a little bit different depending on who you're working with. But for me, even when I first did the CD baby thing, I hit the button. I was looking at the list of places that they thought they were going to be uh, putting it on to. And I was like, what the hell is Deezer? Like, <laughs> just all these random platforms that I've never heard of. And... I do get money from them and people will like tweet me and be like, Oh, I got your album off this random Cyrillic website. Like what, what am I going to do this in Russian? <laughs> <laughs> so I think I feel, I agree with you that there needs to be more of a norm of there needs to be a better common practice on the part of the distributors and on the part of the PROs as well. And I know we'll get to that. Um, in terms of how this money is directed. What is a PRO for those who, who don't know? A PRO is a performing rights organization. Um, so they collect not just publishing royalties. Um, yeah. So the biggest thing is, is obviously royalties. So, you know, when you're streaming something, you're getting a royalty. And that's the, I mean, especially during the pandemic, that's basically all musicians can make now. Um, and historically, that's been mechanical royalties. So every time a CD is made, someone makes, like, I think it was like nine cents now. Um, but that's different now that it's streaming. Um, but even before streaming and during the mechanical licensing period um, of CDs, the royalties have been set by the Copyright Royalty Board. Um, so there's actually three judges that sit in New York that regularly hear representatives from musicians, labels, and now streaming companies then, you know, basically everyone in the music industry and they set the rate for what, you know, everyone gets paid. So, so just to be clear, these are three old white cishet men, most likely, almost assuredly. Yeah, yeah you're right. <laughs> deciding the fate of what, of what is the most, you know, like important generational vanguard in society, which is music. Yes. <laughs> it, yeah, I mean, and that's the way it's been, you know, for, wow. <laughs> I think it was set up in, in the, the 70s, or I, I'm not entirely sure. I'm, if I can uh, just draw sort of like the conversation back to the original chord idea that we were talking about, I think, um, like, like, you, like, you need the middleman, but I think what we're seeing right now is that the way music is being handled on the business and legal side to me, it sounds a lot like, you know, the power core dominance <laughs> of like the late 90s and the 2000s, where it's just like, all I'm hearing is the tonic. Like all right now that we're hearing right now is the middleman, you know, and Spotify and Bandcamp and SoundCloud. And like, I think it's that dissonance that we're trying to sort of like get to 
uh, first we need to understand it, and then we need to fucking take it down. Uh, that being said, you know, it doesn't mean that we're going to get rid of Spotify. It it just really means that we need that as listeners and as music makers, we want these services and the middlemen to dial down their volume dial because they're way too fucking loud uh, and let like the music makers and the listeners have a bigger say in the conversation uh, because ultimately it's the courts that are enforcing these orders and it's the threat of legal action that I think uh, is a big part in sort of like the um, this system that we've already been describing is kind of like a scam. It, it is a systematic process. And the, the idea behind it was, is that they wanted to set a rate that worked for everyone. But anytime you have some sort of systematic process like that, it's going to give way to the people who can afford to represent themselves better. Um, and that, it, obviously the labels, like we've already talked about the labels and these big, you know, Spotify and people hire better lawyers than, you know, the independent music labels. Um, so, I mean, what it's resulted in now is, you know, Spotify pays, you know, three tenths of a cent per stream. And then that's split all the different ways based on you know, people's individual uh, agreements. Um, so, you know, if, if you're Taylor Swift and you're writing your own songs, you're going to make more than someone who just performed someone else's song. Um, but really, it comes down to that systematic process of setting the rates. And there are some royalties and there's differences in mechanical performance and now producer royalties. And all these different royalties are split differently. Not all of them are, are consent decrees, um, which is what the Copyright Royalty Board does. Um, but it's just an incredibly complex process that, you know, most musicians, I mean, until I went to school and found out about this stuff, I had no idea. Um, so how, how are independent musicians supposed to have their say in that and feel adequately represented if they don't even know it exists? Um, so it, it really becomes a systematic issue and um, we need to know about it and so that we can put pressure in the right places. I think we're seeing the inequality that capitalism deals on society is magnified a hundredfold in the music business. Thank you, David, for that wonderful explanation of how the rate at which artists are paid by streaming is determined by the judicial system in relation to play counts. I just want to quickly ask Annalise about something she mentioned where there were instances when she was working for a music distributor, some of the artists had trouble accessing funds that they were owed. Is that correct? I mean, the first thing I'll say is that stores generally report sales like notoriously late. Um, some stores, actually the bigger stores are pretty good about reporting sales on time. It's a lot of the smaller stores that sometimes take a longer time, you know, but a lot of um, artists, you know, they're guaranteed that they're going to be paid weekly and then it turns out a lot of times they're getting paid like bi-monthly but those sales don't always come in on time so imagine you know that your job sometimes paid you on time but like not always and then maybe it came the next week you know like it's just it's not fair and it doesn't allow this to be 
you know, a real, a real way for artists to make a living. And yeah, I think you're right. And I think like, as Jake mentioned, there perhaps is a right way to do it. Jake, uh, what do you think streaming services could do to better pay artists? Um, I think it's a complicated question because on one hand, streaming has its main advantage over all the other types of music vendors that we've had in the past in that it can be free. Um, you can use Spotify for no money if you're willing to put up with the ads. And I think on one hand, that does great things in terms of making music accessible to people who maybe couldn't afford to buy the CD or download it. Not everyone is lucky enough to have a music budget. Um, and I don't want that to be a barrier to accessing my work, but I can only speak for myself. Um, I think we need to come to a better compromise as far as making people pay for the music um, and find ways to keep it affordable. But at the end of the day, um, the ultimate purpose of a middleman between the artist and the consumer is to balance the needs of the artist and the consumer. And right now we have something that is suiting the needs and the wants of the consumers perfectly well, but as has been stated, it makes you virtually no money. Bottom line, I'm not in those companies. I don't know what their, uh, I don't know what their economic situation is. And my understanding is that Spotify actually was not viable until pretty recently as an economic entity. And I'm not sure if it is even now, but some people were predicting back when we first started chafing against how much we felt we were getting cheated by streaming services, a lot of people said, they're not going to last. Don't worry about it. I'm not sure whether any individual one is going to last, but I think there's just going to be successive waves of them at this point. I don't see us going back from streaming. So I think we need to find a way to make sure those companies are, are paying the artists fairly. I, I don't know where they find the money, but I feel certain that they have it and simply need to put it where it's deserved. Yeah, no, totally. Thank you for that, Jake. Uh, and if I can just sort of like draw this back to the original uh, kind of broader picture, uh, I think that's that is where we see the like the transaction and the system as it is now uh, hurting the music makers, right? So, so this is exactly what I'm talking about. That's dangerous of the system is that while it gives the consumer like ostensibly more quote-unquote choice it's not generating uh, a system that can actually keep people from you know doing music and concentrating on music you know and that in the long run is going to mean that the consumer is actually going to have less choice because you know up and coming acts will not be able to publicize their work as well will not be able to profit from their work as they should and this will ultimately make a lot of these acts you know stop doing shows stop making music uh and i think that is like something that's like already happening right now i would add i don't know that it's necessarily as clear-cut as that um in that obviously there's an ethical problem with not paying people a fair wage for their work regardless of what they're doing and who they are but I think in the past, we've seen music be 
a cultural practice that changes to suit any economic landscape, right? Music was not monetized in the way that it is until, you know, just over 100 years ago, 150 years ago, uh, well within that time span, was when it became a commercially successful endeavor. And I think what we're going to see as a result of streaming and also as a result of the pandemic, depending on how, you know, efforts toward a vaccine go and everything else, I don't know whether touring is going to come back as we know it. I don't know whether people are going to be able to find a way to make this profitable. I predict that a lot of people are going to get off the road and take up day jobs and continue to create work. So I just want to be uh, cautious about saying, you know, this is going to end music or push all these people out of the industry. By and large, everyone who's getting into it today knows that your recorded music is not where you make your money. There's a durability there. There's a tenacity there. Music isn't going to stop and the musicians aren't going to give up either. He's right. In this time, the coronavirus pandemic has kind of forced people in all financial sectors to come up with unorthodox uh, solutions that might not have been considered viable before. But at this point, we have no choice but to consider these options. However, for the sake of time, I would like to point the conversation towards copyright. And I kind of want to start off by asking David, is there a way in which streaming services have kind of shrugged off liability onto the shoulders of individual recording artists? So the, the biggest issue with that is, I wouldn't say it's specifically at like the streaming services, but it's the DMCA itself. Um, the DMCA, for those unaware, is the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. It passed in 1998, and it essentially governs how copyright and intellectual property works on the internet. And one of the biggest things in 1998 was people were worried if you upload, you know, if someone in their bedroom uploads something that's copyright infringing onto, say, YouTube, is YouTube liable for that? And the, the big concern was that if you did that, then at the time, you know, all these very small internet companies would never get off the ground if that was the case, because they'd be liable for what everyone was uploading there, and they didn't have a way to screen it. Fast forward to 2020, that is absolutely not the case. And so the safe harbor provision, as it's called, allows basically any content hosting service to host this stuff. Anyone can upload any sort of copyright infringement material, and they're not liable. I mean, the, so the, if an artist actually is infringing and uploads it, they can still be liable. But a lot of times they don't even know if they're infringing. But really the issue comes down to now it is up to each artist to find all of the infringing material on the internet and try to whack-a-mole it down because they don't, the companies like YouTube don't have to take it down until they get a notice unless they had a reason to believe that it was infringing when it was uploaded, which courts have basically struck down to basically mean the person had to admit it. So it's, it's almost impossible to litigate against these uh, large companies, not only because they have power, but because they have the law on their side. But as of right now, it's a game of whack-a-mole that you will never win. Essentially, in the case that this guy covered one of Jake's songs with an oud, and was to record that and to upload it to a streaming service, it would kind of rest on Jake's shoulders to find that 
if the guy hadn't sent it to him and to alert the streaming services to take it down. Is that correct? That, yeah, that's absolutely correct. I mean, in that case, it sounded like, you know, it was endearing. And like, I think it's interesting you brought up consent because that's a big part of the music culture. But yes, if that was something that he didn't like and didn't want to be there, it would be up to him to find it. And it could be up there for who knows how long. And it's a really interesting question of, you know, do you want to censor that so that things like that can't happen? And I'll let Jake speak to if he would prefer that it be censored or or not. But it, it's so you can't have your cake and eat it too soon. Right. So. Right. Totally. And Jake definitely did mention uh, a company that you're signed up with, ASCAP, and how they sort of like chase people down and how much control you have over what they do when they're trying to protect your music. So ASCAP is one of the PROs that we've talked about already. Um, and it's their job to collect royalties for me. I have a publishing company registered with them. I work with public domain music pretty much exclusively. So for the most part, I just am registered as an arranger and I don't get performance shares, I don't think, because I'm not a composer. But in the case of the music that I play and the music that my colleagues play and that is being played at these jam sessions, there is no composer and they are not registered with a PRL. So they're collecting money. They're extorting people over music that they have no legitimate claim to. And I saw a older old time musician who was like more confident and more established uh, call out to executives from, I don't remember which organization they were from, uh, but they were from a PRO and say, you all shut down my jam and I don't get what's going on. And they kept repeating music has value. Music has value. And they want to be sure that people are paying for it. And obviously as musicians, we agree with that. The problem is who's getting paid, right? In that conversation, they kept emphasizing this is a pennies business is royalties, right? You're not raking in a lot of money. It took a lot of pennies to build the BMI headquarters in Nashville. That's all I'm going to say, right? There's money being collected that is not going to the artists. And in the case of this music that they don't necessarily have a right to, to me, that's extortion, right? It's, it's a white capitalist industry coming into this pretty anti-capitalist, pretty non-commercial music culture and trying to make money off of it, even though they haven't contributed anything and they don't deserve to take a cut. Um, that's a pretty specific scenario, but I know it's played out in a bunch of different genres that there's this sort of reversal of burden of proof in the way that they approach this, right? They're not coming and saying, if we find out that someone's been saying something, we're gonna sue you or someone's been playing something registered with one of our artists, they're saying you have to be able to guarantee it didn't happen. Now, whether that would hold up in a court of law, I don't know. David should be the one to talk about that. But uh, it's, it's something that I consider to be one of the more damaging practices in the music industry as a whole, because up and coming artists rely on those small venues, those independent concert series to book their first gigs that lead to the bigger ones. And 
I've had a lot of trouble booking tours because a lot of places that I used to frequent have been shut down for these reasons, right? The venue can't take paying a couple thousand bucks every year for shows that are bringing in a few hundred. And that's a big problem. Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, David, yeah, big question to you. Is this racket legal? I, Tell I, us more. I mean, I don't know enough to, to say whether or not it's legal. The fact that it's been around this long means that someone's probably made it legal. <laughs> Um, but the biggest thing, like he said, he doesn't know if that would hold up in a court of law. Um, it probably wouldn't, um, cause the burden of proof is exactly what that is. They are, that's exactly what they're doing. They're reversing the burden of proof and that's exactly what it is. It's extortion. You're saying, if you can't prove this, then we're suing you. And in a court of law, that wouldn't hold up at all. Like the, the court will need actual proof that you've infringed. So in a lot of ways, that's empty threats, but in a lot, a lot of ways it's not. Because that goes back to the systematic process is that they have the resources to sue you. And even if you aren't infringing, they will sue you. And that is going to cost more money than had you just ponied up the money to begin with, which is essentially what the racket is. So in, in terms of legality, they can sue you and it might cost you money even if you're not infringing, which is why it's continued on like that. Now I think we're touching on where the business gets real dirty, which is they are using their clout, their white capitalist clout, to put people down, uh, to put the music makers down, to put the venues that host these makers down. And it's almost always like, I definitely see the pattern of the courts always like harm the small up and, and coming. And they almost always benefit the big, massive white capitalist. There is kind of this double-edged sword in being a member of one of these PROs in that it can be the same hand that's protecting your art and representing you that also can punish other artists and sometimes even yourself for sharing in your art. In the cases where they've collected monetary differences, it kind of reminds me of something Annalise has mentioned to me where if an artist doesn't hold the appropriate copyrights to either both of their original composition and the recording of that, their music distributor can end up collecting the monetary difference of royalties there as well. My experience at the company that I worked at were vastly understaffed for the amount of artists that were distributing music. So, you know, a lot of a lot of things just didn't get dealt with in a timely manner. And, you know, a lot of times it, it costs artists money. I mean, another another example that I could think of, I mean, this really involves Spotify. This isn't really on, isn't really the fault of the distributor, but something that does happen, uh, I guess, somewhat frequently is, you know, artists will try to 
get some publicity for their music, so they'll sign up for these PR campaigns. And some of these PR campaigns, they really are like a trick, basically, that they just use robots, I think, to they push the algorithms of playlists and stores, and that actually is not allowed. So some are, some people do sign up for like that sort of PR scheme, but there there's a separate one that like is legit, where you, you know you'll be working with the PR firm, and basically they slowly work you up through different playlists so that you're building with the Spotify algorithm to eventually get onto a bigger playlist, and. That's that's allowed. I mean, that's a different situation than like robots streaming something just to build up the algorithm. You know, this this is a legit thing that people do, and they'll invest thousands of dollars into PR for like a certain song. But then what will happen is, you know, Spotify has whatever its trackers, and it will go, hey, why why did this artist who generally didn't have so many streams all of a sudden one of their songs is like trending and it's because you know the artist invested a lot in the PR of that certain song so then Spotify will basically send a notice to the distributor being like hey this looks suspicious we think that this is fraud like just take this down and if that happens you know the distributor then basically has to do it and technically you can argue against it but you know it's just it's highly unlikely that if that happens to you that you will be able to reverse the song being taken down and i do remember that happening like on multiple occasions um yeah it's just it's not right like if things just aren't fully looked into and a lot of the times the artists you know have to make the sacrifices so Another byproduct of the age of social media that Annalise is alluding to is that it's really hard to get your music out there and listened to by a large audience without a solid public relations campaign. And speaking as someone who interned at a public relations firm for music, it's kind of a crapshoot in terms of whether these costly campaigns are going to take hold or not. There's so many factors that go into a successful campaign. Is the publicist good at what they do? Are the media outlets publicists have connections with going to run a story on it? Are people going to read that story? Are people going to listen to the record if they do read the story? Are there enough of those people that are going to listen to it to make the record? Exactly. And I think that really ties it into the broader point. If you're not Billie Eilish, you know, with both your parents in the business already growing up in essentially upper class in LA, your chances as at breaking through are going to be real fucking slim. And that's, I think, the problem that we're seeing. Now, I definitely see Spotify as sort of like this natural monopoly without having to resort to nationalizing Spotify uh, to sort of like make sure make sure that it's paying music makers uh, a living wage so that they can keep making music. Like, like, what other things can we do right now? And I think maybe now is the time for the panel to uh, propose some solutions for the for the people at home who are listening to our show. Uh, what can they do to help the music makers to make sure that the middlemen don't have such a large share of the pie? Because I think from the testimonials that we've heard uh, today, like they're taking 
like they're gobbling up almost the entire cake and they're leaving the rest of us with, you know, crumbs. Here, like on the pessimistic side, like I just guess I don't really, I can't really see with the, the millions of independent artists that are distributed and that go up onto Spotify. I would love to, but it's hard for me to imagine that somehow like every single artist would would be making a, a livable wage. Like, you know, I can't really, I can't really think out of the way how that would work. But at the same time, I still don't think it's fair that artists are getting paid so little. I think on, you know, the optimistic side, something that, that is good is that you know, you no longer have to, when we're talking about, you know, privilege, you no longer have to live in like a major city in order, I guess, to like make it, you know, like you could be making music anywhere in the world. And now because of the internet, you can share it. So I think, you know, that that opens up. It just opens up a lot more opportunities to people where let's say, Maybe in the 70s or 80s, you kind of had to be in a major city or like scouted or, or found out somehow in a different way. Whereas now you're going through the internet and, you know, a lot of people have access to the internet. So I think there is something good about streaming, if that makes sense. But I think, you know, it's an, it's an interesting conversation. Like, I think that there just have always been problems in the music industry. and you know, now with streaming being so different than how it was with the record labels, there's, you know, pros and cons to everything. The pros being that everyone can put their music out there and the cons being that, you know, it's people just are not, or musicians are just not fairly compensated. One solution, and Jake has talked about this with Bandcamp, is that, you know, there are other artists that these days are turning to Bandcamp as a solution in the interim of the COVID pandemic to have their music paid for directly with social media and kind of the democratization of taste and following people that you like and admire. You know, it's kind of a responsibility of listeners to pursue these alternate means to compensate the musicians that they do listen to. Um, so, so there's a couple things I think I think that listeners can do. Um, the first of all is just you know talk to the rep, contact the representatives um, for uh, DMCA reform. I think the DMCA definitely needs a rework, and Congress is actually working on that right now. Um, but also, we need to be more cognizant of the way royalty rates are set. Um, and I've I've been thinking about this, and I'm uh, thinking about writing a uh, law journal article about a something that Cesar and I agree on is a um, regressive royalty scheme that basically would say the more streams you get, um, the less you get paid, so they can afford to pay a higher rate for those initial streams, so the some of the more struggling artists can get a little bit more. Because um, if you think about it in terms of a viral sense, there's an exponential curve. And if you can sort of make that a linear curve, so there's still incentive to go viral, um, but you can also pay starting artists more. Um, I think a little bit more need, thought needs to be put into how those rates are set and maybe a tier system. Um, so really just be cognizant of how, 
how the system works. It's complex, but there still are some parts that we can understand and we can um, vote for, we can advocate for, and we can talk about. And I think that's the biggest part. I think the best thing that anyone can do to support musicians is to go to live shows and buy CDs there. There is no way to give the artist more money than by buying the CD out of their hands. Uh, and if you do not have a CD player, do what a lot of people have been doing at my shows lately and just ask for my Venmo, send me 15 bucks and keep streaming it, right? Or buy the CD and then go home and stream it and don't ever use the CD. That's also fine. I'll just make a few cents more than the cost of the CD. But it takes thousands of streams just to make up the money of one CD sale. And I think we can talk a lot about copyright law and the ways that that's creating sort of structural inequity within the music industry. And we can talk about how it might be stifling free expression amongst artists, although I would argue that has a lot more to do with the level of commercialization in the music industry and the fact that capitalism does not encourage risk-taking. It's the same reason Hollywood is churning out sequel after sequel and reboot after reboot instead of making new movies. They realize they can make more money playing to nostalgia, so they don't do anything new. Music is doing the exact same thing. And the best way you can support artists who are trying to buck that system, trying to do innovative things, trying to say what needs to be said and speak important truths is to go to their shows in your town and do it. Uh, live music is the way to support us now. There is no way to stream us enough that it's going to really help. If you want to throw a couple pennies in the jar, Put someone's album on when you go to bed at night, mute your computer, and just let it play on repeat until the morning. Wolfpack actually did that. They came out with an album that was literally just meant just complete silence. And uh, they got like $20,000, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And then they funded a free tour off it. It kind of begs the question. How does anyone who doesn't come from a financial privilege garner any type of success in the industry? So if listeners are interested in trying to find a way to support legislation that will better pay artists and musicians, there's this group called the Union of Musicians and Allied Workers, and I found some information on their website in which they say, we will continue to organize around issues such as demanding fairer deals from streaming services, ensuring musicians receive the royalties they are owed, establishing more just relationships with labels, and creating safer guidelines for venues. They say, we stand for Medicare for All, a Green New Deal, abolishing ICE, destroying borders, the freeing of incarcerated people, and more. Music workers are workers, and it is time we get organized and join the fight. You can find more information on this group at the website for the UMAW. Thank you so much to the entire panel. I think today we really learned the trials and tribulations that musical makers have to go through just to get uh, people to respect their copyright, to respect their music and to pay them their fair share. I really do think this is like a really good example of how capitalism is this huge monster that has its tentacles creeping all over us. And it just goes into like every corner of our life. And in the previous episode, we were talking about protests 
and houselessness. And I think I see a lot of the same patterns just repeating themselves over and over again. The big and mighty use the law and use the system to their benefit and to their profit, to the detriment of the little guys. And I think what Jake said and what Annalise said is, is totally correct. You know, as the listener, I think we really want to have that pause for thought as we listen to all this music that we love and just really be thinking like, you know, like, like I love Pink Floyd. I know that Pink Floyd doesn't need my money, but I also like Jake's music. So I also know that Jake, you know, is going to definitely appreciate those $10 or that sale way more than Pink Floyd. And I think that's really what it's about is like sort of realizing that as our music taste is growing with the 21st century, so does our responsibility as consumers of this music. And, you know, not to get all Spider-Man on you, uh, but yeah, like the listener has a lot of power right now. You know, we can use Spotify to search up any artist, you know, things that in the 60s, like you had to like run across town to see if you could get that last copy of that one LP that you were dying to hear. Definitely not happening now. So since the listener is not burdened with having to run across town, I definitely invite them to definitely have that pause for thought. When you listen to something, really think of ways that you can really support that artist, even if that means like just straight up paying them through their Venmo. I think that's like, there should be absolutely no shame in that because it's the middleman with their loud voice in court and in the music business that have forced us to this result. We need to reclaim the tip jar because it is the only real way to circumvent the system. The courts simply don't work. The PROs still care first and foremost about their profit and the streaming services don't pay the little guy what they give to the stars. With the tip jar, we put our money where our listening is. We won't change the system just yet, but we can definitely support artists in a way that has their full unabided consent. And that's what this whole conversation has really been about. We want to thank the makers of the music we love in the best possible way. And right now, that's the tip jar. Thank you so much to Henry Ellison, Jake Blunt, Annalise McCarthy, and David Ward. This has been Talking Object, presented by Podcat Media, produced by Zach Franciosi. I'm Cesar Ranero. Goodbye now.